Artistic Whispers Productions presents Antithesis Book 2 Free Will and Other Compulsions A podcast novel written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer Author contact information at www.jdsawyer.net Featuring the vocal talents of Jason Bly, Lorian Wheeler, Michael LaMangelo, Derek Moore, George Clensos. With original music by Danny Shade. This story contains harsh language, sexual situations, and graphic violence. Listener discretion is advised. And now, episode 12. Hello, my name is... Uh, hey, who are we kidding? You know my voice by now. It's me, and this is the story so far. Upon landing in Port-au-Prince, Joss and Allie met a mysterious Australian named Harry who may prove key to Joss's plans. Far above on Luna, Jim Hartman's investigation into the deceased Scott Walters has him suspecting that Joss might have been framed and there is a mole in the resistance. But to be sure, he has to find Walters' missing cat. Meanwhile, Jade, after breaking with Doug over her guilt about spying on him for Cassie, is rebuilding her life, starting with the practical things. And now, Episode 12 of Free Will and Other Compulsions. Chapter 11 Luna City, Luna, 26 November, 2129 Sleeping in her booth was fine the first night. By the second, Jade wanted a real bed. Easy enough to find, Luna City was lousy with sleep locker vendors. Five or ten locks would get you a compartment three feet high and as wide and deep as a full-sized bed, complete with power ports, pornography, and a terminal in case you didn't have a PPD to your name. Half the people who slept in them didn't. The other half were the highly transient, in town for a single night, or looking for a bed for a single hour or a bit more. Which worked if you got off on the panic attacks that came with trying to have sex inside what amounted to an oversized coffin. The place is never hurt for business. Presumably the coffin sex demographic was alive and well on the lunar singles scene. One night in a sleep locker was enough to convince Jade that housing wasn't a half bad idea after all. Comfy enough, sure, but not exactly restful being shut into a space that reminded her of the hidey holes that had kept her alive in days gone by, when she'd made nest beds in easily defended corners behind industrial machinery and dark side. Nightmares bad enough to make her never want to sleep again. Tonight, she needed another option. Home, or what had been home, wouldn't do. She hadn't even been back yet to pick up her stuff. Without being sure of Doug's schedule, she might run into him. The security troubles had his docket classified, so she couldn't find out enough to avoid him without talking to him or his assistant directly. Another couple days and she'd have something figured out. Till then, her list of old friends from whom she felt comfortable begging a favor was precisely one name long. She hadn't talked to Xyler Portillo much in the last few years, aside from the occasional afternoon coffee to catch up, see how he was doing. She hadn't seen the inside of his apartment since... she didn't remember when. At the time, he hadn't had much in the way of design sense, which was okay, because she'd spent most of her time looking at him across the pillows anyway. These days, judging by his living room, he'd fallen for the tasteless extravagance school of design. 
Zai handed her a cup of cloved coffee, sweetened just this side of syrup, exactly as she liked it. It made her eyes itch in the best possible way. Thanks. So, I was wondering if you had a spare apartment to let out for a few days. Maybe a month or two while I get back on my feet? Sure we could work out something. He chucked you? Zyler crinkled his face like he was part confused prune. He hadn't been the one that ended it last time, and he'd always been a little piqued at Doug anyway. Thought she'd thrown Zy over for him, and nothing she said about it ever made any difference. But he didn't hold a grudge, and always stayed a friend. Eh, something like that. She dragged her right wrist across her eyes to help them focus. He found out who my sister was. She sipped, and swirled, and smiled. Who could afford to stick? Scrats. Gonna be a problem? Just need a peg for my hat. Why not ask Cass? Oh, Cass. Well, you know Cass. Sets you on a job, then gets suspicious and shuts you out. Christ. Zyler rubbed his forehead with his thumb and his index finger. Affected, like he'd been practicing it. But it wasn't an act. Zy? What? Oh. She'd been making with for paranoia all fierce. Just sent some new cat in to audit me. She ever done this before? Jade shook her head, took another sip, then had to brush an itch in her nose like part of her wanted to cry. She kept her attention on the coffee and ignored her nose as much as she could. What did it know, anyway? No, not to us. She's... Jade sniffed. She's not... I think she's pushing us out. Maybe we deserve it. I don't know. I thought we were done with all of this. I uh, think she is, too. We don't deserve it. He squeezed her knee. She took his hand and squeezed it back. She gonna screw herself, but royal. Jade shrugged. Without asking for her approval, her eyes started leaking just a little bit. Maybe. Maybe she knows what she's doing. I don't care anymore. She took another sip of the coffee and settled deeper into the chair and closed her eyes, letting them rest so she didn't lose it in front of Zai. He didn't say anything for a moment. Next thing she knew, he was kissing her forehead and saying, You can stay here as long as you like. Thanks. I'd... She almost said, I'd love to, but caught herself. Her heart had served its time as fate's ping-pong ball, at least for this year. I think I just need somewhere to stow my stuff. He knew her well enough to hear her politely pushing off, and didn't press it. Okay. I got you and come off lease last week. Ain't no reason it should go begging, if you like. She pecked his lips and patted his face. Thanks. The address for the cat was in a far swankier neighborhood than Walter's apartment, but still in the same part of town, horizontally speaking. Jim leaned on the bell three times before anyone answered. The door slid aside to reveal a well-appointed room, black and white trimmed in mahogany. Well kept, like its occupant. She was dressed in a silk throw-over robe, not tied particularly tight. From the waist up, she looked like a bodybuilder. Small breasts, broad shoulders, heavily muscled and veined arms, neck leaning toward gaunt. But below, whatever legs she had were twisted beneath her robe as if she was sitting lotus. She rode in a hover chair, a disc-like affair with a control perch in the middle and grab bars lining the edges. She gave him a quick look over and then turned and floated back through a beaded curtain. In a distinctly Kiwi accent, she shouted, Come on in. Want something to drink? No thanks. He took a step inside, and the door slid shut behind him. So I was just wondering... If the world is ending? If your life is worth it? You've come to the right place. 
Jim looked around for telltale cat signs, but nothing jumped out at him. Maybe there'd be a food dish in the kitchen. He heard glass clinking on the far side of the curtain and took the opportunity to take a look around. The walls were decorated with carefully spaced posters and photos, each advertising another production of the Aldrizen Ballet Company at the Luna City Opera House. One of them, to the right of the door, was the one he'd seen in the Opera House three days ago. You work with the ballet? That's what I keep hearing. I suppose time will tell. What do you want? She floated back out, a pint glass filled to the brim with a red-brown liquor. Brandy, probably, or a very dark whiskey. Judging by the flush in her cheeks and the very subtle weave in her posture, this wasn't her first. Jim didn't care to guess at the condition of her liver. Not who are you? I don't give a flying fucking hell. She lifted her glass to her lips and took a full swallow. <sighs> Seen you around the house. Figure you work for Cass. What does she want now? My left tit? The rest of my heart? I'll give her my goddamn spleen if she really wants it. She's got to ask nice, though. Jim shook his head, found his mental footing. No, she, she didn't send me. I'm sorry. I'm looking for a cat. Her eyes, already red-rimmed, moistened and narrowed. You want her. You kill me to get her. So you have her? She ground her teeth. Look, look I, I checked her chip. Jim grabbed a photograph from his hip pocket and handed it to the woman in the chair. If this is her, she used to belong to a man who lived a couple floors down. I need to... Jim closed his eyes so he wouldn't have to look at her when he finished the sentence. Ask her a few questions. What the hell are you, a copper? Jim shook his head. Just doing a job. Fine. The woman floated away again, making a hefty dent in her glass as she went. She returned a moment later, a flame-point white tiger-striped Siamese sitting in her lap. She clutched it protectively, as if afraid he might snatch it away. This is her. She hasn't told me her name yet, but... She looks a lot like an Abigail to me. What do you think? I wouldn't know. Jim leaned in and examined the collar. The numbers matched. How did you get her? The woman shrugged. Showed up at the door last summer. Wouldn't go away. Pretty pussy wanted a good home. Won't leave for no money. Won't even come outside with me. Really? Interesting. Uh, you don't know where she came from. She's a bloody cat, isn't she? Decides for herself where she goes. You didn't take her to animal control? If someone was looking, they'd show up, wouldn't they? She drank the rest of her booze at him. Like now? Yeah. Ice cold. Like now. Do you remember the day that she showed up? Hmm. Maybe the beginning of August? You done here? I have another fifth to get through before work. Yeah. Yeah, I'm all done. Jim got out, considering himself lucky to have avoided a fistfight. He had no doubt she fought dirtier than he did, and whatever got her hitting the bottle had her fighting mad as well. But he had what he came for. The cat showed up after Walters left for Nineveh. Walters didn't board the cat, didn't give it to a friend. He abandoned it. And with everything Jim had learned about him, that made no sense at all. Chapter 12 Governor's Island, the Bahamas 15 December, 2129 So these little babies here slide under the skin just below your temporal bone here. Harry's felt marker left a cold smear behind Joss's ear. 
and then, so as you don't have to deal with any scarring, you take these adhesive patches. Pons? Where are the... Ah, yeah, thank you. You take these. He held up a sheet of little white circles. And slap them on the side of your larynx over the laryngeal nerve. These pick up the nerve impulses for speech and transmit them to your partner. Takes a little work, but you can use them without ever actually speaking. That's part of what we'll be working on today. Today was the second day of straight tactical drills. Joss was rusty, hadn't needed to do an infiltration for about two years now, and he'd never worked with a partner before. Fortunately, Harry had a training center that was going unused over the December break that he was happy to let them run wild in. Landing on Governor's Island yesterday, they'd been met at the airport by a long-faced late-teens Queensland kid named after a brand of makeup, near as he could tell. Pons had driven the three of them up to the main estate on the island, currently on a hundred-year lease to the Australian government, and Harry's personal playground for the current stretch between elections. Hell of a guy, Harry. Jaws had met him in late 27 in Bogota. The man could drink like a desert, assuming that you could find a desert that preferred ethanol to H2O. At the time, he'd been on the near side of 50 and on his third liver. Joss had bailed him out of a crooked card game, so the guy owed him a favor. Harry'd been bucking for a serious promotion to get out of the field, so was vagabonding around South America looking for information he could trade up the food chain to get the current posh assignment. After the clusterfuck in Buenos Aires, the promotion had been Harry's for the asking, and Joss had run deep into the Amazon to get away. The mansion used to be a resort casino, once upon a time. These days, it had been converted into a conference and training center, with a series of shoot houses and combat environments out back, running right up to the beach. In the last 24 hours, Joss and Allie had done two eight-hour shifts running various two-man cover drills, each shift adding a new wrinkle. Today, the wrinkle was the gear. The equipment Joss ordered had arrived, nerve-driven subvocal comms, and head-to-toe stealth suits that completely masked the body's IR signature from electric eyes. The bioelectric adaptive ink in the top layer gave it the ability to color shift, making it appear to blend into most backgrounds from only a few yards away. Bonds? Harry seated the table to his junior assistant. Okay, so here's your first run today. The kid took a sharpie and traced some lines on the streets of the abandoned resort. Somewhere in one of these buildings, Pond circled an entire city block, is the most valuable teddy bear in the world. It's guarded by a full cast of AI, electronic surveils, and maybe some humans. You have to fetch the bear before time runs out, and the bad guys shoot it in the head. If the bear dies, no one sleeps tonight because Harry's daughter won't ever get to sleep. You don't want that. She screams like a dingo eating a scorpion. And the entire city is wired for sound, so if you talk, grunt, or fart, we'll be able to triangulate you. You have to run completely silent. Harry took the conversational reins from Pons with a nod. Now, these suits. You got the cold layer here. This thing dumps its heat to the outer layer with an electric shock, and it works as a full-body heatsink for about six or seven minutes at a stretch, depending upon how hard you're working. The suit helmet will give you a heat reserve warning. When you get under 20 seconds, find a place to hide and dump that heat. Otherwise, you'll start overheating and collapse pretty damn quick. To dump the heat, you'll want to open the vent slips with this pull tab here. Harry held up one of the cat suits, not much thicker than two-layer lycra, to demonstrate. And hit your dump trigger. Close by pulling the other way. Try this on. Harry grabbed a helmet from the table and tossed it to Joss. Pons handed one to Alyssa. Inside, 
Joss saw a full heads-up display, a timer, GPS, clock, vital signs, and a 360 tactical map showing the location of his partner's transponder and any heat sources the passive sensors were picking up. Nice piece of gear. Wait till you see her in the field. Chapter 13. Luna City, Luna. 27 November, 2129. For all of its faults, the lack of proper sunlight and sky, the outside being a hostile vacuum, the population being made up largely of refugees from freak shows and science fiction conventions, Luna City did have its good points. As far as Jim was concerned, the architecture was chief among them. For every district of cramped, Kaiser-era tunnels like the ones near Scott Walter's flat, there was a gigantic expanse embellished at every turn, larger than the great mosques and libraries in Toledo. Parks and lakes all taking advantage of the natural lava tubes as hubs for the honeycombing activities of off-world insects. And variety, more architectural variety than Jim expected in cities many centuries old. Every company and clan that came here in the last 80 years had made its mark in the rock. Some with bright, smooth, mechanistic and modern passages and gleaming doors, others gaudy Greco-Roman facades and friezes, still others carrying a Persian flavor, or Gothic. Even the Indians, Chinese, and Japanese, large swaths of whose countries were still suffering under terrible radiation from the Asian nuclear exchange, had left their mark on everything up here. Aside from the Americans, though, only the Russians seemed to be everywhere, and their influence was most ubiquitous. Theirs was the only language other than English that could be dependably found on every emergency sign. It made the air feel as thick and exotic as any Creole cuisine he'd ever had the privilege to sample, bearable even for a man homesick and heartsick and working at the fringes of his own determination. The capital complex was part of Greco-Roman land, with touches of Bangalore and Fuxiao and Kyoto in the color palettes and the bas-reliefs. The courthouse, though, was pure American imperial, as if it had been pulled straight out of Washington, D.C. Jim found Reeves's office on the third floor. According to the calendar Doug had supplied him with, the judge would be fairly close to lunch break at the moment. Can I help you? Reeves's secretary. Shortish, so probably an immigrant, looked to be Yemeni or Egyptian, but had an accent Jim couldn't quite place. Jim Fleet to see Judge Reeves. Do you have an appointment? No, but I'm sure he'll want to see me. The secretary shook his head. I'm terribly sorry, but the judge is on his break and has a full docket today. If you'll leave a message with me, I'll be happy to- You just tell him I'm here. I'll wait. The secretary, whom the placard identified as Hakim Busiri, shrugged and flicked his fingers at the sofa to Jim's left. Jim nodded and planted himself on cushions that would have been far too stiff in normal gravity. On the moon, though, they were just right. Jim put his feet up on the coffee table and flipped through today's news feeds on his PPD. Piracy on the rise in the Martian shipping lanes. Persian fleet promises action. Jim could think of little that would soothe him less than to be rescued by a Persian destroyer. Anger in the space lanes as Gagarin raises fees for the fifth time this year. Russian premier evades reporters' questions. Obscure colonial politics? Next. Vatican attacks Luna City Biologics Establishment. New Zion joins fight. Jim skipped over that one, too. He long ago resigned himself to the fact that the world wouldn't conform to his religion's notions of propriety where technology was concerned. World waits while Washington wallows. 
Evidently, the Congress critters were having trouble agreeing on how exactly to respond to all the bombings. Oh well. The U.S. might be a great place to live, but it was hard to get anything done there at the best of times. Mr. Fleet, Judge Reeves will see you now. Jim strode through the large mahogany door, one of the only places he'd seen a door even pretending to be made of wood up here, and into Reeves' office. Reeves' office had an unfinished feel. Not even the floor was polished. It had been ground smooth, but the raw, dusty granite was exposed to the air rather than glossed and sealed. The same was true of the walls, which still sported chatter marks from the drills used to hollow the place out. He shut the door behind himself. Reeves stood to greet him. Mr. Fleet, a pleasure to see you. Please have a seat. Reeves swept his arm to the chair opposite his own. What can I do for you? I was hoping you might have that core for me. Reeves nodded. It's being delivered later today. I'll have it sent to... Send it back to where it came from. I'm holed up there for the time being. Jim handed over his PPD with Walters' address, as well as the details for the rest of what he needed. Reeves picked up the PPD and nodded. Very well. What's the rest of this? Uh, search warrants. Walters' bank records here and back on Earth, some other odds and ends. Reeves appeared to consider for a moment, then shook his head. I'm sorry, but this won't be possible. I can't issue search warrants to people who aren't sworn officers of the colonial government. So swear me in. Or get it on the sly. Reeves kneaded his forehead. Mr. Hartman... I think Briggs was framed, Judge. I need this to prove it. This is how I can find your moles. Reeves fixed Jim with his gaze for a moment. The Judge wasn't doing well. A sense of distraction and anguish came off him that smelled uncomfortably familiar, but Jim didn't pry. Instead, he pressed. If you need to, you can deputize me. My California license is still current. I passed CHP Academy boot with high marks... It won't look fishy. Very well. Raise your right hand. Jim did. Do you solemnly swear to carry out your assigned duties in defense of Luna City, the Luna City Charter, and the United States Constitution to the best of your ability and in full accordance with the law? I do. Good. Tomorrow morning you'll get a call from our security director, Muriel Mandelbrot. You'll find the warrants you need in her office. And if she doesn't want to play ball? She owes me a favor. Nice to have friends like that. Any word from... No, I'm sorry. I haven't been able to find anything. They haven't put in at any port I can find. Wherever they landed, Briggs has kept them off the grid. If they landed... Shit. The waiting was worse than even the worst news. He took a breath and bit back his irritation. There wasn't anything else he could do. I'll let you know if I hear anything else. Now, if you'll excuse me. Of course. You've been listening to Episode 12 of Free Will, adapted from The Hartman Gambit, Book 2 of the Cabracan Ascendancy, written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer with original music by Danny Shade, used with permission, and is produced by J. Daniel Sawyer, Kitty Nikian, and Paul Streeler. This episode starred Lorian Wheeler as Jade, Michael Lamangelo as Hakeem Broussari and Zylar Portillo, Derek Moore as Jim Hartman, Philippa Ballantyne as Brittany Hydra, Jason Bly as Harry and Pons, and George Clensos as Douglas Reeves. 
Public domain sounds courtesy the Free Sound Project at www.freesound.org. Other Foley and sound designed by Artistic Whispers Productions. This podcast was recorded, edited, and mixed at Artistic Whispers Productions Studios in Lincoln City, Oregon. The book is copyright 2009, J. Daniel Sawyer, and the production is copyright 2016, Artistic Whispers Productions, Inc. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, and all other rights are reserved to the author and Artistic Whispers Productions, Inc. On Earth, we surf, we skydive, we fly like squirrels, we walk high wires, we jump out of spaceships. But look out, galaxy, because here we come, fast and furious, tearing into the sky for the most extreme human adventure in the universe. Moon marathons, supernova surfing, gas giant storm riding, alien mountains and gravity games, and so much more. Extreme tech, extreme danger, extreme environments. Ten books at the extremes of human imagination and endurance for one low price. Top voices in science fiction and a few fresh faces bring you a bundle packed to the gills with brand new adventures. Extreme science fiction. Kicking ass now, only at storybundle.com. Offer ends October 6th. This afternoon, winter hit hard here on the Oregon coast. Yesterday I was driving the convertible around with the summer air on my face and my driving cap flapping over what's left of my hair, and today, as I was putting this episode together, The rain was coming down so hard against the window that I'm honestly not quite sure the mix sounds right. But hey, that's what happens sometimes. I gotta admit, much as I know I'm gonna miss the summer, I'm looking forward to the bracing concentration of winter. This is the time of year where I spend a lot of time laying down by the fire, tossing the ball for the dog, writing and reading good books. And ho ho ho, man, let me tell you, I have found some good books recently. My current obsession is a suspense writer named Greg Ellis, that's I-L-E-S, who does these dark, tense, character-driven pieces that are keeping me up all night and wrecking my sleep schedule. If you're listening to this podcast, chances are you're going to like Ellis. He's got a very similar sense of the dark and twisty. There's not a lot of business this week to talk about, just a couple of things. The first... I just wanted to remind you about the Extreme Science Fiction Bundle, which you heard the promo for. It's going on right now through October 6th. It's got two of my books in it. And if you get it, one of my two books in there is my new YA science fiction adventure book, Hadrian's Flight, which is an official part of the canon of this series, albeit slightly to the side. If you get it, whether through the bundle or independently, and you want to hear about how I wrote it, I'm doing a series on that over at the NanoCast. That's at nanorimoeverymonth.com. You'll get a window into my process that's perhaps too much, but if you're the curious sort, you might find it a lot of fun. Hadrian's Flight is one you're going to want to read before Book 3. Book 3 will play fine without it, but it gives a lot of background to a major plotline that comes crashing into Book 3 that has in fact just come crashing into Book 3 as I'm writing through it right now. 
Book three is going to be called The Reeves Directive. I'm over 60,000 words in, and oh my god, is it making book two look positively lighthearted and untwisty. Joss Kyle goes some very interesting places, and following him is turning out to be a full-time job. If you want to keep up, I'm blogging about my progress on the blog almost every day at jdsawyer.net. Oh, 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 that reminds me. Blog fright. So, there's this TV show called The Blacklist, and it's got some eerie similarities to this podcast. So many, in fact, that I had someone suggest to me that I might want to think about suing because the creators obviously stole my ideas. Well, if you've seen The Blacklist, you know what a compliment that is, so I went and blogged about whether or not I think they're infringing my copyright and why. Some of you who are legal and culture geeks might find it interesting, and that's also on the blog at jdsawyer.net. Lastly, keeping with the blog theme, keep your eyes on the blog over the next week, because sometime next week there will be a free, completely new short story there for your reading pleasure. It will only be up for a week, so you'll have to read it quick. It's a story appropriate for the inauguration of the Halloween month, with its spooky sense of decay, death, and fallow time. It's going to be so much fun! So, if you've got questions, comments, criticisms, attaboys, and death threats, send them in! Feedback at jdsawyer.net or call the voice line at 434-9-DEAL-IN. That's 434-933-2546. Help keep me going by pitching into the Patreon, we've got some cool rewards coming there, and are brainstorming other things to keep life interesting for the patrons, or leave a tip in the tip jar at jdsawyer.net. Remember, a portion of all revenues generated by this podcast go to our most excellent composer, Danny Shade. And please, now that we're back for keepsies, spread the word. Write a review, talk about us on Twitter and Facebook, sneak into the sound booth at church and play an episode during the sermon, and pelt your enemies with memory stick copies to get people hooked. So, as we plunge headlong into the winter months, and so many of you are now having to unpack your jackets and gloves, and we're pushing into the frozen heart of this story, I leave you with the nagging questions. What will happen to Jade now that she's on her own path in the midst of the unrest? Will Doug's broken heart cost him more than his home life? What will Joss learn as he and Allie train together? And will they successfully rescue the teddy bear? And perhaps most importantly, what will Jim learn as he audits the computer core? Will he follow the trail to Percy? Or will he learn something else even more important? Find out next time. And remember, it isn't whether you win or lose, it's how you rig the game.